Good morning, deplorables and deplorabets. Is that a female version of deplorables? Um, deplorables, deplorable. I don't know. It's like morons, moronettes. Actor, actress. There's got to be the. There's got to be the female version of deplorables. Um, don't you love how? You know, women's liberation fucktards get up on their high heels that you can't can't distinguish. You know, between males and females, it's all got to be gender neutral. But they're they're perfectly happy to accept the best actress award. Ah, <sighs> the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Adam Piggott on the Pushing Rubber Podcast, episode thirty-four. It's uh, Wednesday morning here in Australia, and I've just had to pop a couple of pills. Uh, regular listeners to my podcast and readers of my blog will know that a few months ago, uh, I was diagnosed with having a tropical parasite that I picked up in Uganda over 17 years ago. Uh, her name was uh, Amanda. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, and uh, I had to take these atomic bomb pills, so uh, four pills in one day that literally killed off all the parasites. And it really knocked me around for five or six days, and that was due to the fact that my parasite count, once they'd all been stirred up and killed, hit a level that the, uh, that the tropical, D's, tropical disease infection specialist uh, was kind of left stunned at. Um, he said he'd never seen anything so high. In fact... My parasite count, uh, my blood test four or five days after I took the pills the last time was so high that when I went back to see the specialist and he saw the results, he said, look, 90% chance we've knocked them all out, but if I were you and I had a parasite count this high and it had happened 17 years ago, I'd do it again just to make sure, because otherwise, if there's still some of the buggers around, they'll just build back up to levels. And this time they might, you know, be annoyed with me and, and get into areas, because they can, he's had, he's had patients that were left paralyzed because the parasites got into their spine or left blinded because they got into their eyes or, you know, were turned into progressive leftists because they got into their brain. So these are risks that I'm not prepared to take. Um, so I have to go and do it all over again and in fact well because i went off to europe I, I put off popping the pills but i got back and there was a letter here for me from the uh tropical disease outpatient department stating that my because the idea is that i take the pills again go get another blood test then go back to the dock and check that it's all good but my my appointment was on the 20th of feb and they've moved it to the 13th now, today's the first, so I literally had to get my ass into gear. So uh, a couple of hours ago, I popped two more of the pills. I got two more of the pills to pop. And they leave you feeling, uh, as I said before, they leave you feeling slightly uh, uneasy. I think that's the best way to describe what taking these pills do. You, you feel uneasy. Um, so I get to do all that over again. What joy, what fun, what joy, what fun. Hopefully it won't be anywhere near as bad as last time was though, but I am taking the day off. Well, day off, I've done my blog post. I've done a bit of research for my new book, which is going along well. Uh, I'm doing this podcast. 
uh, but this is what I consider a day off to be for me. And after this, I'll probably read books or something. I don't know. Um, so news uh, the past week. Trump, of course, uh, <laughs> with his executive orders. Now, now, leftists, if you don't like executive orders, why weren't you protesting for the last eight years? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, not a ban on Muslims as being ero- erroneously uh, reported by fake news outlets everywhere. It's a, it's a banning on citizens from nine diff- or seven different countries from seeking entry into the United States over the next 90 days. Uh, now, a fair bit of fair bit of number of people were losing their brains uh, over this, uh, including some, you know, bloggers uh, and writers that I would consider to be a little bit more level-headed um, than what they're demonstrating. Uh, but look, here's here's how I see. Trump's executive order. So his executive order came out on Monday. Um, and everyone is saying that Trump did this for no real strategic reason. And um, I I posit the opposite of that. I posit the fact that Trump does nothing without any strategic reason. There's no way he would have won the presidency, the Republican candidacy and the presidency, uh, without behaving in that manner. He doesn't. I don't believe that Trump, uh, at his age with his experience, life experience, world experience, business experience, people experience, does anything without having a strategic reason for it. Which behooves us then to examine this uh, temporary ban from these seven countries and ask ourselves what's going on is it just to regain some control over a system that's buggered uh, i think there's two strategic uh, moves by trump's part on trump's part here number one but they tie into each other so first of all when trump does something like this uh to this much reaction he would have known beforehand he and his team would have known beforehand that they were going to get this type of reaction they encourage this type of reaction. They're happy with this type of reaction. Uh, and the reason that they're happy is because it's it just sucks in all of the attention of the world's media uh, and progressives and leftists and social media and mouthpieces and all that thing. It sucks them in like a black hole, the black hole of Trump, which leaves him free to make his other moves at the same time while everyone it's, everyone's attention is focused uh, in one place. And I believe that the moves he's making uh, are related, uh, directly related to what he's done with this executive order. So, so this executive order, as far as I remember, was passed uh, on Monday, a couple of days ago. On Sunday, the day before, Trump had a long phone call with the uh, with King Salman of Saudi Arabia. Over an hour, apparently. Now, this has slipped under the radar, but Trump successfully negotiated with the Saudi king for Saudi Arabia to set up and support safe zones, refugee safe zones in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Now, this is something that the Saudis have been point blank refusing to do for years, and it's part of the reason why there's such a refugee, uh, illegal immigrant crisis, I should call it, in Europe at the moment. Because technically how it works is the UN Refugee Convention, if you're a refugee fleeing a place of war, as soon as you get to your first safe place, you stop. 
stop that. That's why there's huge refugee camps in Kenya. They've been there for some time with the Somali breakdown of Somalia in the 90s. Uh, you get to the first place of safety, you've got to stop, and you've technically got to stay there until it becomes safe, and then you can go back and rebuild your homes. That's how it works. Um, so, the Saudis have been refusing to, point back refusing to thumb in their noses at the leaders of the Western world um, for some years now. Safe zones, we're not going to do refugee safe zones. We don't want any of these smelly, they don't want any smelly Syrians in their country, but now they suddenly are. Hmm. So two questions, how did Trump manage to do this and why did he, why did he do it? Uh, how he probably just blackmailed the Saudi king. Blackmailed in the sense of, you know, good business negotiations. So, hey, kings of Saudi Arabia, I guess we'll pull out of uh, the Middle East now and leave you to deal with the um, Ayatollahs in Iran. Good luck with that, mate. Probably would have got him to come back to the table pretty quick. Uh, probably also had him over a barrel, an oil barrel, I would say. Uh, OPEC is becoming increasingly marginalised and with the fact that uh, America is pretty close to becoming energy uh, self-sufficient, as in oil, um, they're not looking so good, considering it's the only thing that brings money into the useless pile of sand. I mean, if camel fucking brought in money, they'd be fine, but no, nah, that's not what it used to be. Dwarf throwing has taken that over. So they're probably the two barrels that Trump had the Saudi king over. So he got the Saudis to agree to set up and support immediately uh, refugee safe zones in their country and Yemen. And if you have a look, look at geopolitically the countries that, well, let's let's just get the list up here. Uh, what shall I type in? List of countries. Uh, in Trump's. It's hard to type around a microphone. Okay, here we go. Iraq, Iran. Syria, uh, Yemen, Sudan, uh, Somalia, Libya. Hmm. So what's Trump? I think the key, the key uh, countries there are uh, Iraq, Syria, um, and potentially um, Libya, depending on how far Trump intends to go over the next 90 days. Uh, so what I think this is is a precursor to Trump uh, and his uh, mad dog uh, Secretary General of Defence um, to take out ISIS. Now, of course, all the, all the lefty liberals will say, well, that can't be done. They're the same lefty liberals who said that Trump wouldn't be elected or that Brexit wouldn't happen or that we, the uh, Conservative Party in Australia wouldn't stop refugee boats, blah, blah, blah. Oh, it can't be done. Oh, it can't be done. It just can't be done. Oh, it can't be done. Can't be done. A lot of conservatives do the same thing. Oh, that can't be done. Whereas Trump, in his first two weeks as office, has proven that. Well, you know what? You know things can be done if you're not a moron. So I think that what the plan is is just to take ISIS out. This is just like bang, wipe, wipe, wipe them off the face of the earth. And I, and I don't think they'll the the, the um, uh, high quality tactical troops they'll be using will be told to take prisoners. I'll say it's it's going to be. It's going to be designed for slaughter, and they're going to go in big and hard. What's this going to create? Extra refugees, and they don't want this problem. They don't want these coming into America. Whereas most of them are going to Europe. You'd think the Europeans would be, you know, thanking Trump for this move, but they're not. Um, so that's what I. That's I think that this uh, 
this executive order, order move was done uh, with great strategic uh, planning um, and is one of the first steps in, a, in steps of what, taking out ISIS. Um, it'll also be a step into getting the Saudis to um, stop being dickheads and playing their part with their Middle East, Eastern um, Talhead brethren. So that's my take on um, Trump's executive order. Okay, so I can cross it off on news. More news this week. Um, Matt Davis, no, I'll say Davis Arini and Matt Forney. Uh, my fellow uh, bloggers and podcasters uh, and friends, I would say, uh, Davis and Matt, um, were uh, gawked. <laughs> it's a term I'm going to use for it. Uh, this week, when, and I'm just trying to get, you think I would have loaded this up already. Um, i tell you what, Davis, if you're listening, your website fucking sucks to load sometimes, man. It really, really, really fucking sucks to load. Anyway, uh, the Daily Beast, uh, a so-called professional news outlet, um, published uh, claims that Davis Arrini and Matt Forney were white supremacist terrorists and were the actual attackers uh, in the Quebec mosque uh, uh, massacre when six worshippers were gunned down and eight more wounded in a shooting on Sunday night. Uh, uh, There was a fake... uh, Twitter feed called Ruta New Break, a break spelt B-R-A-E-K. Uh, authorities have identified the suspects as white supremacists David M.J. Orreen. So they've just changed. So Dave changed Davis to David and Orreen to Orreen. And Matau, Matou Fournier, so a French version of Matt uh, Fournier, but with actual pictures of both of the boys there, um, which... Uh, so this obvious troll account was taken as being real. They did no no basic checking. I mean, even the, the just the root and new break with break spelt B R A E K on their Twitter account. I mean, but the Daily Beast ran with it, uh, ran with it hard. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, all I all all I can say to uh, Matt. And Davis is, uh, you lucky bastards. You lucky, 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 lucky bastards. You're going to get lots of good publicity on this. And you can can go all Hulk Hogan on their asses. I mean, really, I'm not a lawyer, but I think you'd have a a good case here um, for um, for some sort of, uh, some sort of, uh, lawfare, as it were. So uh, good on you, Davis and Matt, um, and um, good luck with um, finding some pro bono lawyers to uh, help you out on that one. Um, what else we've got? Uh, I've, look, I've seen a lot of stuff around uh, the last week or so about uh, you know, you know, Trump. Uh, getting industries to return to America and blah, blah, blah. People are saying, oh, look, blue-collar workers and white-collar workers, you know, they're dying out, blah, blah, blah. And other people are saying they're not and manufacturing is still a thing. They will always need stuff. Um, but whenever I see these um, arguments coming around about, you know, the future for blue-collar workers or, or white-collar workers, I just I just like to think back 100 years ago, um, let's say pre-First World War, uh, America and Australia 
and the majority of people at that time were employed on farms. The majority of people employed 100 years ago were employed on farms and in the farming industry. And in fact, if you look at like maps of Australia and you see all of the towns and the railway networks, it's, 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 a, it's a huge setup that now is kind of almost completely irrelevant seeing as the vast majority of the population is now centred in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, these coastal cities. And all of these, all of these outlying little towns and villages and regional centres are basically, I don't know why people are there for the most part. Uh, and you, and you, you, you know, you're, you go on a motorbike ride and go through these towns and it's just like, you know, there's tumbleweeds blowing through them. Uh, and if you look, look at uh, photos now of modern farming techniques, you'll see one, uh, one or two guys with these huge machines that are doing the work in one day of what 100 guys would have done in a month. Um, and that, I think, is a direct correlation to uh, blue-collar uh, workers and potentially white-collar workers as well. Uh, I think the other other thing is that I think the vast majority or a high p- percentage of white collar workers, uh, if they do any work at all, um, and if is anyone's worked with white collar workers, then you have to seriously doubt that they'd know that even if they do do any work, it could be done in in a couple of hours, and then the rest of the day you didn't spent either, you know, networking around the coffee machine, gossiping around the coffee machine, or or exhausting yourself trying to look busy. Um, so the future of blue collar and white collar, collar I, I, I just think we need to compare recent history and see where that's going to go. Uh, then, of course, the next question is, well, what are all the people going to do? Um, you know, where's the, where's the wealth, you know, where the job's going to come from? Well, I mean, white collar workers weren't really a thing back when it was on farms. Uh, there were a few clerks and that around, but people who you know were involved in the business of writing letters were looked down upon by your brawny farm labourers. Um, where could it go? I don't know. Maybe you'll be male prostitutes. You've got that look to look forward to. But anyway, that's my that's my little take on blue future blue collar and white collar workers. Just look at recent history of farming, and I think you got your answer. Um, get a trade boys get a trade they haven't we will be a long way from inventing the robot that can come up and fix your plumbing hmm? they'll probably invent the sex ro- robot who can do the plumbing before they do the robot that can fix your plumbing in fact i guarantee it um what else what else we got them used um Oh, I've come to the, 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 the I've come to the realization. I might do an article about this, but we're all racist. Everyone's racist. You're all racist. <clears throat> and all of this, you know, we're not racist. I'm not racist. Things that conservatives especially do. I saw a thing on um, on uh, uh, Tim Newman's blog, which is an excellent blog. It's on my um, uh, Tim Newman's blog is on my blog list. His blog's called White Son of the Desert, God knows why. But he had a post uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, regards to race, two attitudes to race relations. Uh, there's, an, there's an old American saying, 
that reputably applied to the difference between the South and the North as regards to race. The Southern view was hate the race, love the individual, while the North view was the opposite, wherein the race was loved but individuals despised. And I think you have there the difference between the right and the left. So I saw this I saw this a lot in Uganda. Um, so your lefties are loving the race but despising the individuals. So they're all go around saying your lefties will go around saying virtue signaling that black lives matter. Uh, and all the rest of the other things that they do. But the last thing they're going to do is, you know, live in a neighbourhood with uh, even a 1% risk that Darkie's going to move in next to them. This is not going to happen. They don't want to be around that at all. And we saw that in Uganda a lot too uh, with NGOs. I think I think uh, NGOs were the best. People who work for non-government organisations, the UN, that sort of thing, that I saw in Uganda, uh, basically only emerged from behind the, the compound walls of the building in which they lived or worked to travel to another building so they could go behind the compound walls and associate. The, the, the diplomatic corps and their families in Uganda was a, was a thing to really... There were, there were a few individuals that didn't do this behaviour, but as always, the individuals tend to prove the rule, the exceptions prove the rule. Um, so they they went on all the time about you know oh you know oh the Africans oh 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 but you know they weren't going to hang around with Africans in a million years. Whereas with the rafting guides, you know we we we'd be like oh, you know you Africans are fucked. You know your your whole your whole country's a disaster. You're a disaster. You, you're all you, 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 brains the size of peanuts for the most part. Uh, so racist but or as, as, I, as I like to call it racially aware um, but we're in there and got on really well with the Ugandans worked hard with them and I genuinely, I genuinely liked them as some really good Ugandan friends despise the race love the individual that's the only two approaches that are available for you as regards to being racially aware. There's nothing else. Everyone falls into one of those two categories. That's the big thing. It's not like there's people who hate the race, love the individual, and then there's people who uh, love the race but despise the individual. And then there's some other people who do something else, like they're like magically immune to all of this racially aware stuff. No, 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 no. That's it. It's not just two attitudes to race relations. They're the only two attitudes to race relations. So uh, the first type, the ones who hate the race that love the individual, are honest with themselves. And the second type live in a virtue-signaling world of hypocrisy. My my question to you, my dear listeners, is uh, which camp are you going to put yourselves into? I definitely will write a post about this in the future. Okay, moving right along. And feeling slightly woozy from these pills, I have to say. Uh, last night I, I caught a little bit of a television program here in Australia called My Kitchen Rules. <coughs> I've watched this in the past. Uh, I generally despise television and um, what I'd call social media te- television in particular. Um, but I actually don't mind this show um, because it's, it's quite well set up. 
and the it it gets interesting uh, dramas, and I love cooking, so I'd only try to catch it now and then. Now, every series this is a new series. I think it's only the second episode. Every series has had the baddie couple. So, for those who don't know the, the American listeners who don't know the uh, another international listeners, because it's such an international podcast, uh, who don't uh, aren't familiar with the show. Basically, you've got uh, teams of pairs. They could be a couple, like a married couple. They could be friends. Mm. You know, they could be uh, brother and sister, uh, mother and daughter, mother and son. That sort of thing. There's been all types of sort of things. They've got to have some connection in some way, and they take them from one of each couple from a different state in Australia. And basically, what they have to do is they have to cook a three course meal at home for the other contestant couples and the two judges. Uh, and then they get graded on the meal. So my kitchen rules, my home cooking, and they're looking for sort of things. That's kind of like the first step. And that's the step that I find the most interesting in the program. After that, the program goes to, your st- gets all the survivors together and they go and they have to do ridiculous, you know, things where they're cooking for, you know, 400 people on a soccer pitch while the soccer game's in progress. Or I don't know what sort of shit. So after after the... The house cooking stage is finished. My, my interest kind of drops right off a cliff. But anyway, in every series is always the baddie couple. Um, in the last series, I think the baddie couple, there were two baddie couples. And one baddie couple were just the baddie. They were saying the worst things about everyone. And they and they and as soon as they cooked, they were out because they were terrible. They didn't even know how to season a dish properly. Uh, but the other baddie couple uh, got actually quite far. I think they were like the third last couple or something um, because it's not just as I think there's like ended up being there ends up being about 20 couples or something like that anyway we've got the new baddie couple um, and the guy um, and if anyone's watched the episode they'll know what I'm talking about but the guy actually reminds me of a real-life version of Sheldon Cooper without the intelligence that's the best way that I'd describe him his partner, I don't know whether they're married or not, um, looks like she's sucked on a crate of lemons permanently. Uh, and my wife, they, 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 they said what, everyone asked what, a couple's were all sitting at the table and they were asking each other what, you know, what they all did for a living. Now, the male in the baddie couple refused to say. He just refused to re- respond to people. He didn't even refuse to, he didn't even say, I'm not going to tell you. He just sat there looking at them with a smirk on his face. I'm a, I'm a secret agent. Um, his partner, the, the female baddie, uh, I, my wife came in after she'd revealed what she did and I said to her, to my wife, what do you think this, this awful woman does for a job? Hint. You would come into contact with her in your job at some point. And my wife uh, kind of looked at me and went, I don't know. I said, what department do you despise the most in any organisation in which you've worked? And my wife didn't hesitate straight away. Human resources. And yes, she was correct. The baddie girl works in human resources. It's, it's really a. Pl- I mean, human resources is apparently supposedly about using your people for your organisation to get the most out of them. So you'd think 
that the people you had would have in a human resources organization would have some form of social skills. And yet this woman is demonstrating exactly what the reality of human resources departments are. And they're staffed by awful, awful, awful women, for the most part, um, who hate children, who hate themselves, who hate everyone around them. And, and its job is just to make people's lives a living misery. Um, so I thought that I thought that kind of amusing on uh, my kitchen rules thing. The other thing I found amusing was the baddie couple. Like the baddie couple are, are really dumping. Last night they really dumped on the cooking. I mean, the two hosts who were you know well-renowned chefs, you know, that they served the main the main course, and and they were like this is really good, we really like this, there's only this technical thing, but otherwise, great job, you've done this really well, blah, blah, blah. And then the baddie couple, once the, the, the other con- the contestants get to eat this, this food that's sitting in front of them, so after the, the two you know, hosts of the show have, have voiced their opinion, the baddie couple are like, no, it's terrible, we hate it, blah, blah, blah. So it's like they're really going all out to be baddie couples. Uh, if you were really going to be a baddie couple, if I was on the show, which I never would ever deign, to do even if they got on their knees and begged me but if I was ever on the show and I was going to be the baddie couple the last thing I would do would let everyone know that I was the baddie couple because they're going to vote on the cooking that I'm going to do and if I've voted badly on everyone what do I think is going to happen when I dish up the food it's competition right so I'd be the the, bad, the version of the baddie couple that I would do is like every dish that came in front of it. Yeah, but oh, this is amazing. Oh, you're amazing, blah, blah, blah. But when they vote on the other's dishes, it's it's done in secret. It's not done. It's before the cameras, but the other contestants don't know what you actually voted because it's just like a group total. And and the other teams voted you this total 30 points, I think they got last night, out of 50. So five teams can vote on you and each team gets 10 points. I'd be like in front of their faces going, oh, this is amazing, this is great, and everyone else, blah, 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 two. Oh, this is the best meal. I've never, I've never had donkey balls served like this before. This is amazing. One. You know? Anyway. That's why, that's why even though I like aspects of the show and and sometimes catch it, though I don't go out of my way to to catch it, but I sometimes do, uh, it, it, it does seem to me that it's all, as all of these, you know, social media type shows are, it's all rigged. Anyway. Anyway. Um, I was reading the Woodpile Report today, which I'll link to on my Friday blog, uh, links of the week, as usual. And there was a bunch of stuff just jumped out at me on, on uh, uh, they're talking about, you know, and this, the, 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 the member of the judiciary that, or whoever she was, that Trump sacked, Apparently it was a Clinton donor, described as a Clinton donor. I see this, they describe, people described as Clinton donors a lot. Whenever I see the term that someone is a Clinton donor, or the, that explanation, that I always envisage, envisage immediately that they're missing a kidney. That's, that's kind of what springs into mind. Not that, they're, that they've been given the money, but, but literally, I think the act of giving the Clinton Foundation money uh, ties you to them in ways like in the Godfather movies where if he does you a favour, by God, you're fucked from that point on. I don't know, they just, just came to mind. I thought I'd say it. Uh, last thing on my list is men dressed as vaginas. 
So men dressed as vaginas, we've seen on this on this so-called women's march, uh, lots of women dressed as vaginas. I tell you what, I tell you what, I'm looking at the at these enlarged vaginas, and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna say it right now, I've never been a fan of going down on chicks. It's never done it for me ever, ever. Just not into it. Yeah, no. I remember the first... No, I won't say. I won't say. You don't want to hear about my first sexual going down experiences. Needless to say, body hygiene, girls, is a really important thing. Fucking hell. I remember the first time I was going, am I supposed to be enjoying this? Am I... Am I... Is this supposed to be fun? Just... Not into it. Anyway, so I'm looking at these photos of this women's. I think uh, I need to look at it. Bayou Renaissance man, um, Peter Grant. Let's see. Let's go here. Oh, can you hear that? That's my old crappy mouse because while I was away, my cat ate my really expensive gaming mouse. Fuck you, cat. Um, now, I think Peter Grant, I'm just... Scrolling down here. Uh, I'm sure he had some photos of it. No. I thought he did. No. Fuck you, Peter. Got the inauguration crowd. Oh, there was somewhere they had the photos up of those. Literally walking vaginas. All right, it wasn't Peter. Um... And I was looking at these photos of these giant, giant, were they plastic vaginas? So then, I suppose what they, that's what they do in progressive ideological art and craft classes now is to uh, make giant vaginas that they can walk around sticking on their heads or their entire bodies. Well, the image, looking at viewing these giant vaginas, the, the image that immediately popped into my mind was um, the third film in the Star Wars uh, films, Return of the Jedi. Uh, on the on the desert Tatooine scene where they've got Luke out and Leia and Han Solo and they're going to throw them into the maw of the creature that exists in the sand. It's got tentacles and stuff that's going to devour them for a thousand years or something while, they, while it keeps them alive. It was a giant vagina, that creature. Hey, look at it. It's just a giant vagina. There's some... Damn, there's some symbolism going on there in that film, isn't there? It's a giant vagina. Literally. I mean, that would be probably... Would that be like a feminist god? The feminist vagina god? That creature in the... What was it called? Um, What search term am I going to use? Um... Sand monster, oh God, I don't know. Uh, sand monster in return of, there we go. Sarlacc, oh, I came up. Images for Sarlacc, oh, there we go. So, look at that, there we go. If that's not a giant vagina, I just don't know what is. Now, I know the majority of the creature is buried under the ground and that's only seeing its mouth, but I tell you what, that looks like a giant vagina. That really looks like a giant vagina. 
Yep. Anyway. Um, so, yesterday, um, I'm working on my new book. And the chapter I'm working on at the moment is a crisis of masculinity because I need to set this up. I need to define this for the rest of the book. And so I've been doing a lot of research and jumping on the net, reading different books, that sort of thing. And I came across a book and an article on Time magazine by a guy called Jack Myers who's written a book called The Future of Men, Masculinity in the 21st Century. Okay. Um... Now, I've got the review of this. Uh, but apparently, so Bias starts off his... And I'll tell you what, I'll link, I'll link this article uh, in the show notes back on my blog. Um, so if you just come, come to this uh, podcast via somewhere else on, on SoundCloud, uh, just go to my blog on the link there on the right-hand corner and it'll take you to... Uh, and you can have a look at... Um, link for this day um the article title of this article is young men are facing a masculinity crisis uh we're at a historic moment in gender relations the women's movement can move ahead with the active support involvement and encouragement of men news to me uh or it can fall behind as men especially young men take up arms behind the quiet but active angry men's movement this conflict is playing out in politics right now. So right there in his first paragraph, Meyer, uh, who's a man, I'm assuming since his name is Jack, but shit, it's hard to tell these days, uh, has stated that uh, the women's movement is the most important thing here. And, and, and if men... The problem is not with men themselves. The problem is that men can go, you know, suck a bag full of dicks as far as he's concerned. But if they inhibit... Uh, the uh, the women's movement. Well, then that's 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 not good. So we got we got to, we'll, we'll have to do something. Uh, moving right along, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are tapping into what I'm calling a lean out generation of. Never heard that one before. Didn't catch on, did it, Jack? Young, discouraged, and angry men. Men who are feeling abandoned by the thousands of years of history that define what it meant to be a real man. Oh, here we go. So this is like the. He's going to actually, Jack's going to define what it means to be a real man here, not what thousands of years of history. Uh, to be strong, to be a provider. There we go. There we go. It's the standard lie. The standard lie. You're a real man if you provide for a woman and her children. Whether or not they're your children or not doesn't matter, but you're only a real man if you do that. It's funny, you know, you look at back at historical men who achieved great things and and I don't think that their priority was to be a provider somehow. Look at the great men in history. Great men. They're not trying to be providers. You know? Trying to go out and do shit. Make stuff. Find stuff. Discover stuff. Whether it's a continent. Or a scientific theorem. Or whatever. But there we go, it's a standard lie. To be an authority, oh, to be the ultimate decision maker, see what's going on here, and to be economically, educationally, physically and politically dominant, so better than women. Yeah, that's not what that's not what it's meant to be a man all this time. Jack, you fucked hard. 
A growing percentage of young men are being out-earned by young women as women capture 60% of the higher education degrees required for success in today's economy. Fuck me. Gee, that's a problem, isn't it? No, it's not. Because we just need more for women. We need more, 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 more. He goes on. We have the window right now to redefine what a good man, a real man, in inverted commas, is in the 21st century. So once again, a real man as pertains to what is good for the, the feminine primacy, as Rollo Tomasi puts it. Going on. As a society, we need to elevate the standards to, to which men are being held. Oh, there we go. And no longer accept the outdated mantra that men will be men and boys will be boys. What does that mean? We must have zero tolerance for the... Dis- this was the... This was the... Oh, this was the bit that got me. This was the bit that got me. Just reading it again annoys me so much. We must have zero tolerance for the destructive brotherhood that occurs when men of all ages gather and depend on sexism and misogyny as their common bond. Just digest that for a moment. So we must have zero tolerance. In other words, we must stamp it out. We must eliminate it. Whenever men get together, it's a destructive brotherhood based on sexism and misogyny, which is a common bond of all men. This is, a, it's, it's so ironic that the title of this article is Young Men Are Facing a Masculinity Crisis, when the masculinity crisis is exactly this. It is this brainwashing propaganda uh, rolled out by quizlings to his sex, like Jack Myers which is the actual crisis here, which is what I'm doing, writing about in my book out soon. He goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, by the way. I'm coming up to one point. I'm almost done with the bit I'm going to read out. Quoting on. These are the tools of the patriarchy. Of course they are. They are the rituals of hazing that signify a boy's entry into manhood. Mm-hmm. My God. They can be discarded if we create a new narrative that welcomes young men into a truly gender-equal society. We should beware of falling into the trap of believing that the future of men is an either-or confrontation with the women's movement. And here we go. We're building up to his big denouement. The future of men is women. There you go. Thank you, Jack Meyer. The future of men is women. He goes on, I believe women and the women's movement can be at the centre of a new narrative and national conversation focused on developing positive male role models for future generations. So his answer for future male role, male role models is for women to do it. That's kind of a bit of a bit of a confused binary that he's going on, got going on there, isn't it? Getting women to focus on better men, dads, husbands, boyfriends and sons does not come at the expense of the rightful attention to women's rights and equality. Of course it doesn't. You've got women's rights and equality and then you've got women deciding on what makes better men, dads, husbands, boyfriends and sons. It's not going to get in the way of anything to do with women. Uh, There are no uh, comments allowed on this piece. I wonder why. His book has got some interesting Amazon reviews. Um, his book actually is expounds on this theme. I'm, 
I really, I really think I'm going to have to read it. Unfortunately, see the things. See, see the things I do for you, my readership, listenership, podcastship, deplorables, deplorabets. The things I do for you. Ah oh dear. Um, apparently, in his book, his thesis that runs throughout the book is that males are inferior because they possess a Y chromosome that is degenerating, whereas the X chromosome is strengthening. Um, which is bizarre because the devolution takes place over millions of years. Um, so that's pure fucking retardedness right there. But there we go. Uh, the future of men is women. Uh, and I've got a photo of Jack Myers. Let's get a photo of Jack Myers. I'd like to believe that Jack Myers is a product of propaganda and brainwashing. Um, Is he dead? No. Um, let's have a look at him. They're saying he's got it. Let's have a look at his science. So, yeah, he looks to be in his 50s. Um gender news on his website oh god this i'm gonna keep this website bookmarked this is gonna have a lot a lot of copy for me definitely go check this out um but there we go the future of uh uh men is women from jack Elliot from jack myers uh a complete cuck and a quizzling and a disgrace to men everywhere and here he is giving a ted talk jesus motherfucking god um so i'll link that um that awful article in the in the show notes um but that's what i'm writing down in my book is because the, the title of the book is how how to be a man in a feminized world and I have to set out, I have to set out, uh, I'm sure that many of you listening to this and many of my readers wouldn't need to have it explained to them why we are living in a feminised world. But I want the book to appeal to a broad readership, which is men who are struggling to deal with what's going on, but it just, you know, they, you know, they haven't taken the red pill yet. So we need to work this out at a certain level. Um, so the first chapter of the book is just going to be defining, uh, in a simple matter without being, uh, my book is not going to be an academic text. It's got to be very, very, very approachable. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm working on right as we speak. I got about 2000 words done yesterday, which is quite nice. I might even keep a few of them. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I've got also got my chapters. I've got 23 chapters though. I might pare that down. Uh, cause I think that's, I think something a little bit, 
uh, saying the same thing. But anyway, shout outs. Um, Cappy, Captain Capitalism. He had um, he had an interesting uh, f- video this week um, on a case for global warming as a religion. The comments were really interesting on the YouTube video. There are still a lot of people who believe in this. And there are a lot of people who are ego-invested in this whole global warming thing. And ego-investment means that you've tied your identity into believing this. It's become a religion for you. So when someone questions, let alone attacks, uh, the thing that you've invested your ego in well that's that's a personal attack on you and you read through the comments um on the youtube video that cappy's done uh on this and it's you know i i read all your stuff cappy i love you economics but 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 you you know you're literally a bad person for saying this now and i'll never read your stuff again i mean hey i've been on record from the beginning of my uh blog that global warming is a scam. Um, so if any of you think that, you know, I'm on the part of global warming, you're seriously deluded. Um, but it really is illuminating. It really is illuminating how deeply uh, otherwise, people who are otherwise able to logically look at stuff. I've got friends who agree with me on many, many, many things, but we get on this topic of global warming and climate change. and Oh my God, do they go off the deep end. Literally foaming at the mouth. I disagree with them. So check that out over at Cappy's. Uh, he's got it up on his site, and also he's got his YouTube channel. Um, and uh, and he's a supporter of my podcast. So go and do the right thing and listen to his stuff, read his stuff, buy his books as well. Uh, my books, of course. If you just just you know just popped along and discovered this podcast, pushing rubber downhill, and run guts pull cones. <coughs> Using my life as as a basis to explore two different themes. The first book, Bushing Rubber Downhill, is basically about how do you change your life, uh, particularly as a man today. How do you how do you get from A to B when you don't even know what B is, and you don't even even ensure what A is and where you are. Uh, and the second book is about uh, male camaraderie, comradeship, um, esprit de corps, um, and working and, and living together uh, as men and how that group dynamic works and evolves. And um, I don't know if I said this. Did I say this last podcast? I can't remember. But, yeah, I was recently in Europe and it was a family member who uh, read both books. And he's a young man, and I thought he would have much preferred the first book. But to my surprise, he much preferred the second one, Run Guts, Paul Cones. And the reason for that is uh, we recognise that he's lacking that male camaraderie in his own life. He's never really had it. Uh, and that's what drew him to that book so much. So those are my two books. You can get uh, both of them are available in paperback and in Kindle. Uh, and Pushing Rubber Downhill is available in an audio book read by Davis Arini. So there you go, Pushing Rubber Podcast. Uh, hope you all enjoyed it. I will now go and take some more of these horrible pills. Hopefully I'll still be around next week. Um, And uh, uh, don't you all go changing my 
deplorables and deplorettes, deplorabits. De oh. If someone could come up for the female version of deplorables, that'd be great. All right. Catch you next week.